following audio is from St Nick's Durham. As a church, we exist to love God, love people and love Durham. We hope that this sermon will serve you well as a supplement to your regular Bible reading, prayer and participation in your local church. For more information about St Nick's Durham, directions or resources, please visit stnicks.org.uk. This morning's reading is taken from the second book of Samuel, chapter 11. We will be reading from verses 2 to 5, and then from verses 14 to 26. This can be found in the Church Bible, starting on page 314, 314. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. And then verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, When you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger might flare up, and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight from the wall? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobesheth? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Also... Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance to the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, 
Say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things out of your word. Amen. I wonder if you ever watched a drama, whether a thriller or a soap or a kind of glossy box set series, and you've seen a character deciding on an action. A situation is set up. Various options are open. Some of them may be risky or dangerous or stupid or criminal or just wrong. There's the sound of quivering strings or electronic music trembles in the background. The tension rises and then suddenly the person begins slowly to move towards some kind of action. Sending a message, reaching for a bottle or a pill, going off towards a meeting, opening a drawer. That often happens, isn't it? And you you know the kind of thing anyway. And sometimes you can feel yourself going, don't, stop, don't do it. Don't you realize what could happen? Just think. Of course, if they listened to you, there wouldn't be a drama. But it grips us because it is so human. We can see a person trying to make decisions and choices being drawn in different directions, thinking things through. We've come to a turning point in the story of the line of David, the root of Jesse. David isn't perfect, we know that. He's a man of his age 3,000 years ago of a very different ancient culture. He's a king, a warlord, but he's a hero. He's a friend whose personality calls forth loyalty and love. He's a leader people follow. He's popular, he's strong, uh, he's talented. He's a singer, songwriter, particularly good line there, with spiritual perception and openness to God. All these things come out in the story of the rise of David that's told in the books of Samuel that we've been hearing about over the last few weeks. But here we meet David's spectacular downfall. And I wonder if if you read the whole of that story, you find yourself saying, stop, don't. Can't you see what's happening here? So how come he can fall in this way? The title of today's sermon um, on the the program is Tempted 
And if this is to be any help to us today, we need to look at the story not just with a sense of horror or moral superiority or judgmentalism. We need to look at just how it happened to a man like David. I'm not going to retell the story. There is really no way to improve it in the telling. It's just an extraordinary narrative. This chapter 11 in particular is not told as a moral tale, but as a chronicle of court life with bald statements. The narrator doesn't color it over with moralizing and sermonizing. This is history, he says. Just think about it. Think what's going on. And the first thing you have to notice from the way it's told is that it sets out David's power. David is the king. Sometimes he's at war and goes himself. Sometimes he sends an army under another commander. In fact, that's what's going on in the previous chapter, chapter 10. But this time, the writer emphasizes, he stays behind. He's in his house at the beginning of chapter 1, when he ought to be, or when most kings are out on the field doing what kings do. He's resting when he should be doing. He's alone when he should be leading his people. He is, in fact, saying, I am the leader. I'm the king. I can do whatever I like, whenever I want to. And it's in that frame of mind that he looks down and sees this beautiful woman and goes on to make inquiries about her, and one thing leads to another, and so on. When people have power, it's very easy to form the habit of focusing on ourselves and our needs and our wishes as the most important things, and then just going for it and doing it. And by power, I don't just mean political power like David's, but the power of having an income of our own, of having time which we are not accountable to anyone else for, for um, the ability to make our own choices, at least in some areas of our lives. Of course, even if we don't have any of that kind of power, it can still be very tempting to turn that into a grievance about our own lack of power and opportunity, which can be equally self-centered. But here we are looking at David, who has power and he is tempted and he goes for it. I wonder if today it's a bit difficult to take seriously the process of temptation and sin. You know, we can talk about our weaknesses and how we all make mistakes and so on, and that's quite true. But perhaps these days it is difficult because in our culture we often don't think of temptation as a challenge we use the word very often with a smile as we are confronted with an open box of chocolates or a luxurious dessert. The question, how can you resist, is answered by smiling and taking our favorite. 
It's not to be faced and fought, but to be embraced and indulged. That's how it seems. But maybe that's why it's temptation. In the Bible, the word temptation often means testing. Some way of proving the strength or authenticity of something. And here, David is facing a test. And the value of a story like, of a story like David's is that it shines a light on temptation to show in stark light and dark shadow what falling for temptation actually leads to. I don't know what challenges and tests you may be facing or have faced. We may not have faced quite quite the same tests as David does, or maybe we have. But it's quite possible to have a sense of power or a desire for freedom which makes us resistant to any kind of accountability. At this stage in chapter 11, David has no one to challenge or question or support him. He gets deeper and deeper in and no one is able to stand up to him. Anyone reading this story is bound to ask how much other people knew about what was going on, how much Bathsheba was manipulated or whether she could have done more than she did. But this is not the story of anybody else. It's the story of David. And the way the story is told is saying David was responsible for what happened here, for the adultery, for the deception, for the deceit, the murder of Uriah, and the needless death of the other soldiers who were fighting for his cause. Nobody was able to question or challenge until we get to chapter 12. But that's for next week. So don't miss it. In our individualistic society, such questioning rarely happens at a personal level, except in a very unsatisfactory kind of shaming, social media, judgmental kind of way. And that's why, if you're a Christian disciple, you and I need the church. We need the community. We need people who can hold us to account. So we need to become more sensitive to the way we live our lives. How much are we preoccupied, as David, with my tastes, my time, my interests, my church? Of course, there's a strong strand of wisdom teaching that recommends a balance of work, rest, worship, and service in order to be what we are called to be as uh, people made in the image of God and disciples of Jesus. And sometimes people are internally overdriven by personal pressure to achieve, and that needs to be encountered, needs to be countered. And one way of doing this is by making boundaries. But that doesn't mean that our time is our own to do what we like with. If in our hearts we decide to live as unaccountable kings, we may fall as David did. The temptation is always to live for myself, to do it my way, because I can, because I want to. This is what comes up in the story of David. For us, it may be 
sexual temptations, or it may be the way we control our responses to our neighbors in other ways, the way that we use our resources for good or ill. Especially these days, the desire may be to consume and to spend in a way that denies our responsibility for the damage that our civilization causes to the environment. All of these things are uh, things which may become temptations because we want to do things our way because we can. But there's one little point in the story that doesn't come out in the reading because of our translation, but it seems to me to be very uh, useful to note and quite scary, actually. When David receives the news of the death of his faithful Uriah and others, David sends a message to Joab. Uh, it's at the end. Don't list, in our, in our uh, reading, it said, don't let this upset you. Uh, or don't let this matter trouble you, he says to Joab, the, the commander, about the fact that all these people had died. The expression used in the original Hebrew is an idiom, I understand. Don't let this thing be evil in your eyes. Don't let this thing be evil in your eyes. And all the way through, the, the, the narrator has been describing David's actions without comment. And now he shows David whitewashing the whole thing to Joab. Don't let this thing be evil in your eyes. Don't let this thing trouble you. In stark contrast, in the very last verse of the chapter the writer begins to introduce David's moral accountability with the first reference to God. You'll notice all the way through, he's just told the story. This is what happens in a court. And there's been no reference to God. This is the Bible, no reference to God at all. Until right at the very end, where the last verse of the chapter says in our version, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, that uses exactly the same expression. The thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. So there's this enormous contrast. David, after all that he's done, he says to Joab, it's okay, don't worry. But at the end, it shows how far David had gone God's view of the whole thing was diametrically opposite. Now this is the David who, you know, we know was the man after God's own heart, the one who wrote perhaps many of the Psalms that we love. And yet at this point, he was so far away from God's view of the situation. That's how far he had fallen David had seriously failed the test. Now there's a prophecy in Isaiah 11 which speaks of the coming king of Israel. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. That's uh, the, the basis of the series that we are doing uh, this, this, these months. The history of the Jesse tree is told in the history of Israel. 
and the tree came down when the monarchy of Israel came to an end. It's a very messy, complicated story that's told in in Samuel and Kings. But I'm inclined to think that these chapters here, chapter 11 and 12, represent the first blows of the axe on the tree. Nonetheless, through it all, the tree is not dead and it doesn't die. Because as the prophecy of Isaiah says, there shall come forth a root from the stump of Jesse. It's still alive. It's been felled, but it's still alive. God keeps it. And in the fullness of time comes one from that root who is a king whose whole orientation is different. When Matthew's gospel introduces a list of the ancestors of Jesus Christ, he is the son of David, the son of Abraham. And in the actual list at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, there is no attempt to wash, whitewash this incident. David is called the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. When David was tempted, he fell. Temptation is always at the door in some form or other. And that's why Jesus taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And we'll have the opportunity to say those words and mean them later in this service. When we do... Remember that Jesus warned his disciples on that very night before he died to keep awake and pray that you may not enter into temptation. We know that those disciples didn't keep awake and so far as we know they didn't pray an awful lot. And later they ran off into the night and left Jesus alone. Jesus on the other hand stayed awake and prayed and said to God, not as I will, but as you will. Your will be done. This is a very different king from the one who walked on his roof, saw, sent, inquired, and took. And then when there were consequences, he exerted power to cover it up and try to make it look okay. Well, yes, he is a very different king. But he's described as one in another part of the Bible who sympathizes with our weaknesses and was in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. So through him, through Jesus, we can receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So daily, let's keep that in mind. And that could be the greatest Christmas gift ever. Amen. Thank you for listening to the St. Nick's Durham podcast. If you would like to hear more sermons and teaching like this, then subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
For more information about St Nick's, visit our website at stnicks.org.uk.